Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books and Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Each week we choose an interesting new book on some area of sports and we interview the author. This week's guest on the podcast is Nicholas Sarantakis, Associate Professor of History at the U.S. Naval War College. We are discussing his book, Dropping the Torch, Jimmy Carter, The Olympic Boycott, and The Cold War published in 2010 by Cambridge University Press. This coming summer, the London Olympics will draw some 17,000 athletes from 205 countries. Organizers expect that the Games will generate £5 billion for the British economy and that their opening ceremony will be the most watched event in television history. What a difference three decades makes. In 1980, the Olympic movement was in a much different state. The International Olympic Committee, made up almost entirely of West European aristocrats, had reluctantly granted the Summer Games to Moscow only because no other city had managed to submit a decent bid. And then, months before the Games, the Soviet Union had sent troops into Afghanistan, prompting the American president, Jimmy Carter, to say that the United States would not be sending its athletes to Moscow. Not content just to keep American athletes home, Carter sent his diplomats around the world to prod other nations into supporting the boycott. At one point, his administration even considered prosecuting the IOC in U.S. federal court. Nick Sarantakis' book covers this whole strange episode, the bumbling efforts of the Carter administration to lead an international boycott, and the responses of other nations' governments and Olympic committees to Washington's appeals. Without question, the word exhaustive can be applied to his research. Nick gives a detailed and careful picture of how the Olympics fit into the international relations of the Cold War and the domestic politics of the United States, Britain, Australia, and other countries. Nick has done work as both a diplomatic historian and a historian of sports. This project on the Olympic boycott brings together these two interests. As he explains at the start of our conversation, this is a book that he long wanted to write. So let's turn to the interview. My guest today on New Books and Sports is Nick Sarantakis. Nick, welcome to the program. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. So I'll ask first about your background. Dropping the Torch is your fourth book, and the previous three had all focused on the Pacific and East Asia and the Second World War. So so I'll ask you to start what led to this this change in direction in your research to look at at the Cold War and the 1980 Olympics. Well, uh, it was something I've always always been interested in doing. In fact, it was something I wanted to write even before I wrote my dissertation. Uh, so that's it's been a long-standing interest it's also i mean i'm I'm like sports i'm trained originally as a diplomatic historian and i know if you look at my um, uh, first few books it looks like i'm a military historian i've written a lot of article stuff in in on foreign policy history the books tend to lend a little more towards military history although if you get into them there there's a lot of diplomatic history in them but this is something i was very interested in doing it's actually um it's my fourth book. It's my fourth published book, but I've got two others that are basically unpublished. So it's actually the sixth thing I've actually written. And uh, the original book, the first book, the dissertation, uh, ended with the Nixon administration. And um, so I, it's on U.S.-Japanese relations, events with Nixon. And so I got into the 70s. And so those kind of things kind of led me towards the end of the decade, uh, the end of the 1970s. And um, it's kind of all those 
it was kind of, it is kind of something of a jump, but one of the unpublished books that um, I'm working on is, is it's a sports book, but it's about Richard Nixon, and there was some stuff on that, and some of that research ended up in this book, but uh, there there is more of a kind of connection between doing U.S. East Asia, U.S. Japan that ends with Nixon and doing something on Nixon and sports and going from Nixon and sports to Jimmy Carter, although that Nixon book is actually going to come out after this uh, Olympic book. but um, So that's kind of how it went about. So it doesn't look like, there. it looks like a bit of a big jump, um, but there is kind of a connecting um, tissue there. Yeah, I had noticed that in your CV that you have these these articles on Richard Nixon in sports, which can, which which made me curious. So I look forward to what are you going to write about in a book on Richard Nixon in sports? Well, it's uh, it's an interesting project in and of itself. And basically, Nixon was a sports nut. He lived out of a Walter Mitty fantasy, and you know he got to call and he did some things that seemed very odd at the time. He wouldn't call people after they won the big game and say, congratulations on winning the World Series. Now that's kind of commonplace. Uh, he would have receptions and after you know a team won the national championship and something and say, congratulations. And now that's kind of commonplace. But at the time, it was quite unusual. And one of the things that he did that involves the Olympics is he tried to basically um, lobby um, that's a polite way of putting it, the International Olympic Committee to bring the Olympics to Los Angeles. And eventually it does happen, but uh, he was trying to get them uh, in Los Angeles for the 76 uh, 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 games, you know, part of the American Bicentennial, et cetera, and that didn't quite happen. And uh, instead, of course, the Olympics of 76 went to Montreal, and Montreal beat out Los Angeles and Moscow. And uh, the International Olympic Committee didn't really want to choose between uh, the United States and the Soviet Union. They didn't want to get pulled into the Cold War. So I said, oh, Montreal, Canada, we'll do that. So, And then uh, the next go-around, Russia, the Soviet Union won that one. So that, some of that does get into this book, um, the efforts. That, and the Nixon administration actually basically started bribing um, members of the IOC to actually vote for Los Angeles. So it wasn't necessarily a very uh, sophisticated effort, but uh, Nixon's chief of staff, H.R. Haldeman, insisted on keeping a very detailed paper trail, and I stumbled on that. So I actually used that research and that writing for this because I have a chapter basically I talk about, you know, how how the Olympics ended up in Moscow. So and. And that that was actually informed a lot of what uh, that chapter has to say. Yeah, that was going to be one of my questions actually to start is uh, how did how did the games end up in Moscow? Because the uh, the IOC wasn't really keen on having the games hosted in the Soviet Union. No, they weren't. And um, the basically what had happened, make a very long story short, or at least I hope make a long story short, is the Olympics had gotten pretty big uh, by the seventies, and it was. It was actually something that a lot of the people are starting to lose money on. So if you have the Olympics and, you, you know, it's a great prestige thing. And, you know, Tokyo was very happy to have them in 64 because it was a sign that they had fully recovered. And Mexico has them in 68. Of course, the Germans wanted to have them. And, you know, they were looking forward to that, you know, because the last time they had had the Olympics was Berlin 36. And that didn't go over so well. Uh, but it turns out to be very expensive, and there's a, it's more than just having, you know, two weeks of athletic contests. You have to have, you know, a lot of different arenas. You have to have a lot of hotel room, and because, um, you know, you're not just inviting, you know, a couple thousand athletes. You're inviting all the judges and the officials and, of course, the spectators and the fans. So you have to have something like 30, 40, 50,000 empty hotel rooms, and there aren't that many cities in the world that have that many hotel rooms, period, uh, much less uh, you can block them off. So they're becoming bigger and bigger, and people are losing money on this, and as a result, a lot of cities don't want it. And in fact, in the 70s, um, there are only three cities that bid to uh, host the Olympics, uh, and that's Montreal, Los Angeles, and Moscow. And that was in the entire 70s, so obviously Montreal gets 76, and then uh, when it went up for 1980, uh, there were only two cities that were bidding, and um, Moscow won that, uh, mainly because the Russians did a much better job of putting together a proposal. The Americans kind of showed up and thought, you know, hey, we're from Los Angeles, and, you know, that'll be enough. And um, 
And then in 78, when they had to choose who got the 84 Olympics, there was only one city that wanted to do it. Um, now, with the Soviets, you know, they were um, they wanted it for prestige purposes, but they weren't too worried about losing money because it's a controlled economy, and you can basically tell people, okay, we're going to have the Olympics here. Just don't be in town for two weeks and stuff like that. And there's not a lot people can do, you know, when the KGB is saying leave. Um, so that was kind of how um, how Moscow ended up in in a, with the Olympics in one sense. Uh, and you're right, the IOC did not want to give it to uh, Moscow, but and that's one of the reasons why Montreal got it in 76. And the IOC is, in a lot of ways, it's basically internet, it's a club. It's a lot like the Augusta National Club in Augusta, Georgia. Uh, you know, it's a very exclusive organization. It's A lot of people have think it's kind of like a miniature version of the UN, but it's not. Uh, the IOC picks its own membership. So even though you might have an Olympic committee, it doesn't mean that you're going to have a representative, and I'm doing air quotes there. It's not coming off very well in, um, in a audio-only interview, but uh, you don't get a representative. So if, to give you an example, uh, Cuba has an Olympic committee, but there are no Cubans on the IOC. Um, and um, uh, the people on the IOC in the 70s are, and this was a bit of a surprise, probably as much as a third of them are basically Euro European nobility. So you'll have a lot of uh, dukes and marquises and princes. Uh, you actually have King Constantine of Greece was actually a member of the IOC. Uh, so it's, you know, very rich, aristocratic, literally. Um, and they were not eager to give the Olympics to Moscow. And, but the Soviets did a really impressive job. They could say, hey, we've got the stadium space already established, which was more than Los Angeles could say in um, in 74 when they were basically choosing who, get, who got the 1980 Olympics. So it was a decision the IOC made basically very reluctantly. But it also came at the height of detente and, you know, kind of cooling attentions and everyone's starting to get along in the Cold War period. So they kind of said, okay, well, it's not what we want to do, but it might be okay. So one of the strengths of the book is that you set uh, the 1980 boycott in, in, the, in this broader context of Olympics and politics. And one of the things you note in an early chapter is that there have been uh, actually numerous instances of threatened boycotts and even the exclusion of nations from the Olympics mm -hmm. over over issues of international politics. Yeah, that was a bit of an eye opener for me. Um, and it turns out about half of the Olympics have been boycotted in one sh shape, form, or another. And for example, um, Indonesia boycotted the '64 Olympics, in the, which were held in Tokyo, not because they were angry with the Japanese, but they were angry that the Chinese were not being allowed to participate. And there's a whole dispute about who gets to represent China: uh, is it Taiwan or is it the People's Republic of China? And eventually, that gets worked out. Um, and now Taiwan and China both get sent teams. But there are in some of these boycotts, people barely remember. This obviously 1980 is the big one, but 88 Olympics in Seoul were boycotted by the North Koreans and the Cubans, and uh, no one really cared. Um, because I mean, Cuba's strong in boxing, but that's about it. So it might have mattered a little to that sport, but no one really cared that the North Koreans weren't there. Uh, they were throwing basically what amounted to an, a temper tantrum that they should have some of the contests in North Korea, and the Cubans kind of backed their play. But after 84, you know, the Soviets didn't want to do any more boycotting. The China, People's Republic of China didn't want to boycott, even though they're probably North Korea's closest ally. So there are a lot of little examples like that. And then there are other examples that were a bit of a surprise. Right after World War One and World War Two, the IOC basically said Germany ain't competing. End of story. And uh, there was no reason other than the fact that most of the members of the IOC had been on the side of those those conflicts and basically said, uh, we're sticking it to the Germans. So no Germans in 48, no Germans in 1920. So, uh, and then there are other disputes that you wouldn't, that you almost don't think of. It's like, what flag do people get to use? Uh, that was a real issue with uh, the divided Germany's, divided Korea's. Uh, it was a big, it was a big issue uh, before World War One, when you had countries like Canada, which was part of the British Empire, and there's this little controversy about whether or not they should be part of the British team or if they should have their own team. And then Ireland, you know, wants to use a different flag than the British Union Jack. So um, there are all these little issues. So almost 
half the Olympics have been the subject of some kind of political demonstration. So the IOC reluctantly awarded the 1980 Summer Games to Moscow, and then in December 1979, the Soviet Union invades Afghanistan, ostensibly mm-hmm. to defend a, a threatened communist government. And you, you do discuss in detail the circumstances of the invasion, but I want to talk about the, the American response and the immediate response. So when did the, when did the Carter administration uh, mm-hmm. begin to consider a boycott of the Olympics, and what led them to that idea? Well, that's a good question. Um, the Carter administration basically had done kind of poorly with the U.S.-Soviet relations, and uh, Jimmy Carter becomes president in '77 uh, and has detente, and he has one vi- vision of detente that's different from the vision that Nixon had, which was different than the one that Ford had, and which is very different than the one that the Soviets had, and he's going to inject discussion about human rights into this, and in some sense that seems fairly legitimate, but for the Soviet Union, they kind of thought this was intrusion in their own domestic affairs. So things are going south between the United States and the Soviet Union. And then the Soviets decide to invade Afghanistan, and some of the reasoning for that it remains kind of confused. But they invade, as you said, pointed this out, and no one cared about Afghanistan. And that's kind of one of the things that's become clear to me even afterwards, is we didn't really care about Afghanistan per se. It was that the Soviets had done this, and this was a military move by the by the Red Army, uh, by the Soviet Army. It's the first invasion of territory that they didn't control in 1945. And Jimmy Carter basically said, "I I can't stand, I can't tolerate this." There were some feuds within the administration between his Secretary of State and his National Security Advisor, and Jimmy Carter had been coming, moving more and more towards a hard line. Uh, that uh, his national security advisor, uh, new Brzezinski, was advocating. And by this time, this is like, okay, look, they're, they're dangerous people. We've been telling you about this. You really need to take a hard line, and now look what they're doing. They're seizing Afghanistan. They're going after more territory. Um, so Carter was basically, he felt embarrassed. He kind of tried to do detente, and he had tried to go to the soft line early on, and he had basically this finally seemed to ratify what hardliners within his administration were saying was, um, you know, you can't trust these guys or you have to really deal with them only through strength. And so they start, I mean, they have a meeting, if memory serves me, the, the day after this happens, and they're kind of fumbling around. And early on, the idea about boycott is thrown out, and Jimmy Carter says no, but... Um, the weird thing is is the news media kind of leads him to think that this might be a good idea. There's a very influential uh, column in the Washington Post written by Robert Kaiser, and uh, he basically says, you know, they, Kaiser says the Soviets have invested so much you know, money and effort into the Olympics. This is really kind of an international coming out party for them, and if you boycott this, this will just have reverberations across the Soviet Union that they can't hide, and that's kind of like, oh, well, Maybe we maybe we should rethink that uh, boycott thing. But early on, the administration and there were some policy papers, and they basically said, "eh, it's not really going to work." But uh, they didn't have a really good response to dealing with this invasion, and and they needed to do something. And it seemed to be an okay response. It wouldn't would be strong, but not too strong. So uh, it quickly caught fire. Um, I would say within about less than a week between the time. In fact, I think it was six days between the publication of that editorial and the time that Carter decides that the United States will boycott the Olympics. And so this was just aimed at causing injury to the Soviets. It was understood, we're not going to get the Soviets out of Afghanistan. We're just going to um, give them a slap in the face, basically. Well, that's what it turned out to be. Um, but there actually Kaiser's editorial actually suggested that uh, a boycott might actually start the process of bringing down the Soviet Union. Now that the Soviet Union is gone, it actually came down for some fairly fairly legitimate reasons. But um, I think they kind of a, a f- effect uh, attributed more influence to the Olympics than or a different type of influence. But they were thinking. Um, you know, there, this argument is seriously made for a time that we can actually maybe end the Cold War if we actually hmm. do boycott the Olympics. There's also an effort to say, um, well, if they've invested so much money and time in this, they might actually pull out. And when the boycott ultimatum is issued, uh, Carter does say, you've got a month. You know, you invaded a month ago. You've been in in Afghanistan for a month, so we'll give you a month to get out, and then we'll boycott. So. 
he makes the announcement on January 20th, and he basically says on February 20th, if you're still there, we're we're boycotting. And there was at least that has at least some effort of saying, you know, we're making an effort not to make this an issue. It's really on the Soviets mm-hmm. um, now. Military operations, it's very difficult to you know just turn around and get out in in you know four weeks like that. So. And that really wasn't realistic, but uh, it does kind of take some of the onus off Jimmy Carter for boycotting, and that had some political play. Although at the time, people weren't exactly sure why he was taking this month to do it, and some people were criticizing him. And then another thing that happened is, well, what happens if they decide to pull out, but they don't pull out by February 20th, but they're on the way out? Maybe it takes until April. And that was like, you know, are you going to still boycott if they're getting out? But, you know, and it was like, well... And the administration didn't have a good response to that question. Mm-hmm. So at first, when he makes this announcement, and this was on uh, one of the Sunday morning talk shows, uh, yeah, he had he had a lot of support in the United States, correct? In the press, in uh, with public opinion, and in Congress, correct? Overwhelming, it was, and that was another surprise for me. I was around at that time. I was about thirteen, fourteen years old, but um, I remember it being kind of ambiguous and divided. But early on, overwhelming. Just, I mean. Opinion polls, some are scientific and some aren't, but any, by any measure, the American people just, there's overwhelming support. There are votes in Congress that are just, you know, 98 to nothing, or, you know, in the Senate, or actually one senator votes against it, but, you know, it's like overwhelming in the House of Representatives. So, I mean, not even close, like 378 to, you know, three or something like that. So, um, the only, only element of American society that really opposed from the get-go was the Olympic movement itself, um, the athletes and the coaches and the administrators. And it's obvious why they would kind of oppose that. They were invested in this. They, some, In some cases, they had spent years preparing for these games, and they wanted to go. But what surprised me is even like the sports writing community, even sports journalists, overwhelming support, overwhelming support when Jimmy Carter makes this decision in January of 1980. Now that changes. That starts to change in February and March. And one of the things I argue in the book is the um, the Lake Placid Olympics, and specifically the uh, 1980 Olympic hockey team, they have this you know enormous run. They win the gold medal. They upset the Soviet Union in the first round of the playoffs, and then they, they win the gold medal in the next game. It's had enormous ramifications for the boycott because suddenly it's like, hey, we just humiliated the Soviets at their sport, you know, um, you know, they're people chanting USA, USA in, in the arena, and suddenly people are starting to see the power and the magic of the Olympics, and suddenly people are saying, hey, wait a minute, maybe we can do that to them in Moscow itself. And there's still this, you know, contentious thing about the 72 uh, basketball tournament where, you know, they win the gold um, in a fairly suspect manner. Um, so there was like, hey, you know, that'll be the culminating thing in the basketball finals are always at the very end. It's like the last day of the Olympics. So, you know, I think we can go there and win a lot of gold medals. And the people who were winning gold medals in uh, the 70s uh, were, you know, the most gold medals was basically the Soviet Union and the United States. So it's like, hey, we can go there, you know, and take the, you know, win the Olympics, if you will, win more medals from them on their home turf. This might have a big propaganda value in the other direction. Prior to this time, a lot of people have been saying, you know, oh, we don't want to be used the way the Germans used the Olympics in 1936. We don't want to be part of a Soviet propaganda thing. But people started saying, hey, there's, there's an other side to this. They can't control the contest, and if we actually win it, um, this might be a good thing. So if once that happens, you start seeing the polls, looking at the poll numbers, it never became – a majority never develops for actually going, but the enormous popularity, and we're talking like an 80, 80-something percent in the American public is supporting it in January. By March, you've you've gotten something like 58%, so it's dropping quite rapidly. Mm-hmm. So right away, the Carter administration decides that this shouldn't simply be a boycott by the United States, but by other countries as well. So why did the White House want to turn the boycott into an international movement? Well, you know, it's like let's 
let's make it clear that this is unacceptable and this is universal and it's not just the United States, it's everyone and it'll give the it'll give more force to the thing. If it's just us, people will be able to dismiss it as, you know, tit for tat or something like that. But, you know, we can make clear to everyone and this became a test for um, the NATO alliance, they have to boycott, you know, and the Carter administration starts calling in a lot of IOUs and other places, and they want to make it just unified and say this is totally unacceptable, you have to get out, and basically it will give them more weight. Uh, that was what they were hoping for. So an interesting story in the book dealing with this diplomatic effort to, to gain more support is that the, the administration put Muhammad Ali to work as a diplomat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a little, uh, that was odd. I had completely forgotten about it. I had known it at the time, but um, they basically said, you know, it was a little outside the box thinking that turned out to be not so, not so smart because it was like, well, let's send Ali to Africa. You know, he's an athlete. He won a gold medal in the 60 Olympics, you know, and, you know, he's got a lot of standing in Africa. And a lot of people in Africa, the leadership of the various African states found it rather patronizing. I mean, um, Ali was, you know, it's like, He's he's a Muslim American, and he said, okay, the Soviets are killing Muslims in Afghanistan. That's unacceptable. You know, this is wrong. I'll I'll do it. I can be a patriotic American. And you have to remember also that Ali had, you know, been stripped of his title for a bit and prosecuted by the U.S. government for not willing to serve in the military uh, during the Vietnam War. So for him, this is something of redemption, you know, and there's actually pictures of him hugging the president when he gives a report. So for some of this, this is like, hey, I can prove that I'm actually a good American, loyal American, et cetera, do, do something patriotic. So he goes to Africa. And basically, it was one of those things where he was not briefed. He was not. He he crams it into a very busy schedule already, and he's showing up jet lagged. Uh, some of the people who are running uh, the countries, uh, and I'm trying to remember the specific ones. Kenya is one of them, but uh, you know, some of them say, um, "Yeah, I'm I'm actually a serious person. I, I run a government." I'm a foreign minister. I'm a president. I need to talk to some boxer. Um, you know, so it's like, yes, he's black, but I, I, certainly don't you have a real secretary of state you can send here if you're really serious about this? So uh, it turned out a lot of people found it a little patronizing, and uh, it got ripped to shreds in the editorial pages. I mean, so it was an interesting idea that it ended up not coming across too well. So. So in looking at this this diplomatic campaign to gain support mm-hmm. for the boycott, what were the arguments that the, the Carter administration used? Because it appeared from the book that the arguments varied and uh, and they were actually pretty thin. They were, and they didn't really know what they were doing. I mean, because um, people think that there's International Olympic Committee and the International Olympic Movement is this kind of reproduction of the UN, or you can simply go and convince a prime minister, you know, boycott the Olympics. Well, the prime minister might say, yeah, it's a great idea. And in fact, there were a number of um, government leaders who said, yeah, this is a good idea. I'll support you. But the Australia is a good example. Prime minister um, down there was, you know, enthusiastically behind the thing. But the international, or excuse me, the Australian Olympic Association was, was a private organization. And they're like, uh, not so much. Thank you for your input. Uh, we'll let you know what we think. So it was... Um, it was thin, and at one point it became, well, Jimmy Carter's making the stand, so you need to back him. Uh, if you're a, good, you're a good ally, you'll back our play. Because the original arguments were, you know, hey, we'll humiliate the Soviet Union and prove that they're going to force them back down from Afghanistan, and that clearly wasn't going to happen. And then it was like, well, the U.S. is taking this lead. You, you're, our, you're the junior partner or one of our junior partners, and it's your duty to back us. So, so a key detail that you bring up in the book, and this is a small episode, but it, but it is a telling story, is that uh, the White House counsel, Lloyd Cutler, who was, who was mm-hmm. something of the point person on the boycott, he wanted mm-hmm. to, to legally target the, the IOC. And as you say in the book, he wanted to, to destroy the IOC. Yeah, for a time, the Carter administration couldn't really decide what it was doing. Uh, first, it's going to boycott the Olympics, and it's going to destroy the IOC um, and the idea that Cutler comes up with is like, well, this is a violation of U.S. antitrust law. There's only one, you know, International Olympic Committee, so let's sue them. Um, And that's kind of one of the strengths and weaknesses of the IOC is it's an international organization. So, you know, it you can sue it maybe in U.S. courts and maybe, you know, suspend operations in the United States and keep Americans or from participating, but you can't really sue, 
you know, the IOC and Irish courts because U.S. antitrust laws just don't apply there, or you know, in Spain or Italy or Australia or Indonesia. So it was one of those ideas, and the Attorney General kind of says, you know, uh, this isn't really going to work. And, and the Olympic, uh, excuse me, the Carter administration also considers one of their proposals is to uh, set up um, a permanent home for the Olympics, and this is a reoccurring idea. Uh, when people decide they want to boycott the Olympics, they decide, well, if it was just if it was held every four years in Greece, we would avoid all these problems with you know Germany or Indonesia or you know Tokyo or whatever. Um, so it's an, it's an effort on their part, on the Carter administration's part, to kind of say we know better than the Olympic officials what's in the best interest of the Olympic movement. So that's an idea that's thrown out there. They spend almost no time other than writing a press release saying they want to do that, or actually not a press release, it's a statement and uh, speech that Carter gives. And I think that really is about the total commitment of the administration to that idea of creating a permanent home. And that doesn't really solve the problem, but um, and then another idea that they throw out is they want to create a, a set of alternate Olympics, the free world Olympics, if you will. And that turns out to be something of a disaster as well. So they're pursuing a number of different options. And um, They were trying was, to get the games moved from Moscow at the same time, weren't they? Yeah, that was actually an uh, early proposal. Uh, the IOC meets at Lake Placid, and they basically kind of intimidate um, – the U.S. Olympic Committee into putting this idea forward. It's like, let's move the Olympics to somewhere else. And obviously the, the ideas that are thrown out are, well, let's send it back to Montreal or, um, or let's send it back to uh, Munich where the last two Olympics have been held. And by this point, the, the Olympic, you know, it's six months before the Games are supposed to start and it's just not going to happen. And as I said earlier, it takes a long time to put these things together because you have to have the hook hotel space, you have to have the transportation system, you have to have the stadiums and all this sort of stuff, and that's not something you can do on a dime, and six months is a dime in this kind of situation. So IOC says, we're not going to do that. So that was an early proposal, was move them somewhere else. We don't really want to, and that was part of the administration's um, line, is we don't have a problem with the Olympics per se, we just have a problem with them being in Moscow. So we don't we don't we love the Olympic movement, but we know better than Olympic officials what's in the best interest of the Olympic movement. And clearly, being in Moscow is wrong. So you guys should move it. International Olympic Committee doesn't exactly buy that argument. They say uh, we're in it's Moscow or nothing. And logistically, there was no other alternative. It's either you know have the Olympics in Moscow or don't have the Olympics. So you make the point in the book, and uh, and you cite various athletics officials as sources that that uh, this larger boycott effort, this international boycott effort, it was wasn't simply a matter of diplomatic bumbling by by the Carter administration. They really also had no understanding of international or amateur athletics. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people said, "Oh, this will be easy. You know, we'll just get, you know, um, you know, Indonesia and the Philippines to back our play." And what you see time and time again is the governments of these countries saying, "Yes, we will do it." But, you know, with a few exceptions here and there, um, these are private organizations. The IOC really is a club. Um, you know, it's I mean, they have a chalet in Switzerland, they have a museum. Um, so, I mean, they have their clubhouse, you know, it's just like a golf club. And it's 100, actually, about that time, it's about 88-odd individuals. And they shouldn't have really been targeting, you know, okay, Italy, back back the boycott. Because the Italian government says, yes, the boycott's a good idea, but, you know, the Italian international, the Italian Olympic Committee says, no, no, thank you. Um, what they should have been doing is, you know, saying, okay, um, Juan Antonio Samarok represents, or a Spaniard is on the IOC, you know, um, uh, Lord Kalanen uh, is the Irish is an Irishman. He's on the IOC, and so forth. And they should have been, you know, having these talks with these individuals, getting them to to agree to the boycott. So, or going to the head of the various committees and saying, okay, French Olympic Association, you know, Belgian National Olympic Committee, you know, talk to the chairman of that committee and say. Um, you know, we really think that Belgium should boycott. Going to the foreign ministry of Belgium doesn't really get you much. I mean, the Irish Republic uh, agrees to support the boycott. But the interesting thing about that is, is Ireland is represented by the Irish Olympic Association, which represents all 32 counties in Ireland, uh, the 26 in the south and the six in the north. So 
even if you know the Irish Republic says yes, you have this kind of transnational group that's kind of going. No one's talking to us, and uh, we think we're going to go. So we'll go. So it was like a lot of pressure that's being placed on people, and a lot of times it doesn't do any good. So you do talk about this process, which was uh, really over the spring and early summer, where uh, uh, the administration does realize that they have to make the case to uh, national Olympic committees. And, and you have in, you describe in different countries how uh, the governments, the national governments, are negotiating and appealing to the the National Olympic Committees. And I want to ask about a couple of the countries that you discuss at length. And one is Britain. So how did this process of uh, the government supporting the boycott and the Olympic Committee not supporting the boycott, how did that play out in Britain? Well, Margaret Thatcher, uh, she's prime minister at this time, and she thinks, you know, the boycott's the right thing. You know, she takes a strong, principled, moral stand uh, on this thing. She says the Soviets are wrong. They're killing the Afghans. we got to do something, and doing this is the right thing. But she also, you know, because of her strong conservative principles, doesn't believe in, you know, uh, using government authority to, you know, um, arrest, you know, the chairman of the British Olympic Association. She wants to lobby them. Um, there are some ideas about seizing their passports and making it impossible for them to go. And she says, no, 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 that's it's kind of anti-democratic. That's the authoritarian stuff. So I'm going to lobby them. And she puts a lot of pressure on, you know, the British Olympic Association. But there are things that she's not willing to do. And the British, being you know, good English gentlemen, listen to her and then say, "Well, so we'll have a, we'll think about it." Parliament debates this thing, and they eventually say, "Yes, we will." We Parliament officially supports this um, this boycott, but again, it's like Parliament might support that boycott, but it doesn't matter because it's the British Olympic Association that will make the decision, and it's kind of an interesting mix. Uh, the, a lot of the people who actually led the British Olympic Association were fairly members of the Conservative Party, Thatcher's Party, um, and they're like, "Well, hmm, this is an odd situation. I, I, I oppose the boycott, but it's my political opponents, you know, Labour Party, is the ones who are actually giving us support." So politics makes strange bedfellows, um, and um, so they do this stuff, they do the debate, the British Olympic Association uh, has actually already passed a resolution in 79, even before the even before the invasion, that said, we're going to Moscow. Because, again, people weren't really thrilled about going to Moscow in the first place, and they they basically refer the Prime Minister back to this resolution of, you know, March of 1979. I don't know if that was the actual date, but it's something that they do beforehand. They say, we will consider it, but, you know, the idea about and Thatcher is backing the idea of an alternate set of Olympics, and they basically say, um, "Madam Prime Minister, that, that's silly. Um, that, that's like putting on a World Cup, and uh, you can't do that in six months." So they they consider it and they quickly say, "No, we're going to Moscow." And as it turns out, um, one of the things I liked about doing this book is that it, it does focus, as you say, on all these other different places. You know, uh, the debate in Germany, the debate in Australia, and so forth, but you know, the everyone thought that the make-or-break place was just going to be Germany, and it turns out that England or Britain's vote is actually determines it because here's America's closest ally basically saying no, we're going to go, and then Thatcher doesn't give up. She keeps putting political pressure on British Olympic officials until you know July of 1980, the Olympics start in 1980, but she doesn't take these things like okay, I'm going to take your passports or you know. Um, find some other legal pretext to keep you here. She does do a couple things where she says, okay, members of the British military, you aren't going. I can give you that order. And she does kind of cut off those things, which I think are fairly legitimate. She's you know, in charge of the government, and she can tell members of the government, this is the policy of the government, you're not going. And so some you know, Olympic, British Olympians can't go. Um, or if they go, they have to take leave and go on their own dime. Uh, government support for the Olympics, at least in 1980, stops, at least in the U.K., but she doesn't do anything else. You know, it's Jimmy Carter's the one who's attached his personal prestige to this. I'm taking the moral stand. Soviets are bad. If, you don't, if you're obtuse to this, that's on you. You'll have to deal with it um, thereafter. And that gives a lot of people in other European countries – 
the diplomatic political cover to say, okay, we're going. And there's a ripple effect. Spain votes to go, France Spain votes to go, and so forth. Germany ultimately votes, or I should rephrase that, West Germany uh, at that time votes to boycott. Uh, but that's about the only major European nation that uh, decides to Western European nation, obviously the Eastern uh, European states that are communist at this time are going, but it's the only Western European nation that basically says we're not going. Major European nation. I, now that I say that, I think there's one or two others that decide not to go. I think Finland decides not to go, but Al- Germany. Albania, was, I think you said didn't. Yeah, I, I'm going blank. Um, I want to say Luxembourg. I think Luxembourg votes to boycott, but Luxembourg is you know. Is not the particularly big country in world affairs or in the international Olympic movement. So there are one or two other European countries. Germany is the only one that decides not to go. Everyone else is going. Switzerland's going. Italy's going. France is going. So the other country you discussed where this debate between the government and the National Olympic Committee was was particularly contentious is Australia. So you mentioned already. Uh, the Australian Prime Minister wanted to support the boycott. So what what trouble did he run into in in Australia? Well, he took a... One of the things I discovered is that the places where it's most intense, the debate is most intense, is the countries where uh, you're having an election year. And in 1980, there's obviously a presidential election in the United States, but there's one for Chandler uh, in uh, in Germany, or not necessarily for Chancellor, but for Parliament. Uh, there's also one in um, in Australia. So uh, the Australian Prime Minister uh, makes a serious commitment there, and then it becomes a partisan issue in Australian politics. And, uh, and as I say in the book, that's where that's probably where it's most vicious. Um, people are, I mean, it's very intense and very ugly. And ultimately, the Australian Olympic Association decides to go, even though. You know the, the news media in Australia has qu- clearly lined up against uh, going. Um, individual athletes are being called and basically saying, you know, if you're patriotic, you need to you need to not go. And some of this is basically kind of as um, the Australians. You know, uh, if any Australians are listening to this, they're probably going to be offended. But they're still they're not really they're thinking as kind of a junior partner. We have to support our American allies. They're they're not the uh, they're on the periphery and they think it's important. Uh, to back their political mentor, the metropole power, you know, the nation, the, their big patron. So it's like we got to back the Americans. And there's overblown rhetoric. If, if Australia goes, it starts World War III. And um, Australia eventually, you know, votes to go. But it's it's ugly. It's the only place where a member of the International Olympic Committee actually uh, changes sides. Even the Americans on the IOC um, basically back the uh, back holding the Olympics there and opposed the boycott. But um, it's quite ugly, quite vicious, and uh, it's actually a point where um, I think the Olympic Association was was might have actually voted to boycott, but uh, the prime minister overkills and starts calling individuals, which what he should have done, but he's basically saying, you know, you need to do this, and people who are already kind of leaning towards it basically find this kind of individual pressure off-putting. And, I mean, yelling matches um, in hotel lobbies where the Olympic Association, the Australian Olympic Association, is having their meetings. So quite ugly, quite intense. Um, um, There's um, basically the – Australia obviously has an Olympics uh, in 2000, but its members of the 1980 team are just kind of seen as pariahs. Uh, They they don't want it. The Australians, even to this day, kind of – yeah, we went, but eh, let's just not talk about those guys. So this same process took place in the United States. Uh, the the Carter administration announces that the United States will boycott, but really the, the U.S. Olympic Committee had to uh, not accept the invitation to go. And so how did uh, the administration convince the USOC to support the boycott? Uh, a lot, a lot of intense political pressure. Um and Lloyd Cutler is very good about basically threatening legal action. Uh, the U.S. Olympic Committee had a federal charter, and it's like, hey, we're going to pull that. Um, they, um, they're threatening uh, the director of the U.S. Olympic Committee, is a retired Army colonel who's obviously got a pension. They say, hey, man, you will back this or you will lose your pension. Um, whether or not the government could have actually done that um, is a different story. But that kind of personal pressure is being put on. Uh, individual members, and it's basically presented as you're either a patriotic American or you're a selfish athlete who doesn't care about 
the innocent uh, Afghans who were getting killed, and he just were willing to be a pro- propaganda puppet of the Soviet Union. So they do a very the Carter administration does a very effective job of kind of shaping the debate, and there are plenty of people in the in the room uh, when the USOC holds the vote that said, "I don't want I want to go, but I, I it's next to impossible. It is impossible for me to oppose the president." And um, I, it's interesting. I get a couple emails from people who were, you know, on the team or who were in the room, and they say, you know, we had these military guys who just, you know, said, I, I can't oppose the commander in chief. He's made this reasonable request. I don't agree with it, but I got to do it. There are other, you know, Republicans who say, you know, you know the, the National Rifle Association has a representative on the USOC, and I quote him in the book, and he says, you know, it was. I was basically painted into a picture. If I pose Jimmy Carter, I'm supporting the Soviet Union, and I kind of resent that. But it's a little more nuanced than that. But politically, he's done this, so it's kind of a lot of a lot of stick, a little carrot in the sense that uh, the Carter administration promises, "Hey, we'll make sure we get you some funding, you know, uh, throw you some U.S. dollars, uh, U.S. government dollars, and I'll agree to." help a fundraising campaign to raise money for, you know, future Olympic teams. So it's a bit of a carrot and a bit of a stick, mostly a stick, though. So the common picture of Jimmy Carter as, as president is that he was uh, – he's, he's this man of, of great moral idealism, uh, this man, mm-hmm. of, man of faith, and, and that his failure as president is really because of his uh, naivete and his idealism. But, but you give a, a different picture of Carter as president. Yeah, and that was a bit of a surprise too. Um, this this guy comes across as very strong. Very, all that is true. He's he's very principled, but he's also very strong. He's got you know, and he makes decisions and he sticks to them. He's not he's not indecisive the way um, he was portrayed at times. He makes decisions and you know he sticks to them. Now one of the surprising things that came out of all this was that actually in some ways. Um, he was almost quite. He was almost 180 degrees. What his reputation is as being there was this. The phrase at the time was zigzag. Um, that he was indecisive. He couldn't make a decision and stick with it. Uh, what I found was he made a decision, and because of that, it almost encouraged him to say, "No, no, we are going to do this. We are going to do this." So there's an almost reaching pigheadedness. Um, um, very rigid policy. They've picked this policy, and now that's what they're going to do. Lloyd Cutler is the point man for the administration. He's um, in 1980. He's the uh, presidential counsel, so he's on the White House staff. He's not in the State Department. He's not on the National Security Council. He's just the president's personal lawyer. He's basically the go-to guy. He had been kind of a fixer. Uh, he'd gotten Carter out of some political jams earlier in his administration. Uh, he's one of the very few Washington insiders who kind of moves up into the high, highest levels of that administration. Carter brought a lot of Georgians uh, from Georgia with him. And um, Carter um, Carter likes Cutler, and he says, you know, Lloyd, you do this. And Cutler was, you know, Cutler was a good lawyer. I mean, he knew how to use, you know, power, and he'd make arguments. But he he would go to these meetings, and he'd just say, the president has said this, and you will do this. And people might be raising fairly good objections and saying, well, this is not necessarily a good idea. You know, we're talking about the alternate Olympics, and he said, now oh, the president's committed to this, so you got to deliver. And, um, and that's kind of a good way to winning a you know, bureaucratic debate is, you know, the president's, you know, said do this. And the president's going down into the bureaucracy, you know, three and four and five levels, writing notes and margins and trying micromanaging the situation. Um, and that's not healthy either because, you know, they're saying, well, to do this, we need to do that. And Jimmy Carter's writing on memos, no, I've already said we will do X, Y, and Z, and we're going to do X, Y, and Z. So they're like, you know, you're, you're some poor schmuck who, you know, you know, GS-13 or something, and you got a memo from the president saying you're going to do X, Y, and Z. You do X, Y, and Z, even if it's a bad idea, <laughs> even if you know it won't work. <laughs> <laughs> So, so you're you're critical of Carter in the book, but I'll ask you for your appraisal of the head of the IOC, Lord Kalana. And how do you, how do you think he handled the boycott? Michael Morris, the third Baron Kalanen of Galway. He's an Irish citizen, although he grew up in um, the UK and actually has a British title. Um, member of the House of Lords. I'm not exactly sure how that works, but anyway. Um, Kalanen is one of those things. There's a lot of reports, uh, a lot of accounts about him, and 
a lot of people say he's a good gentleman, you know, uh, very proper guy. And other people say weak leader, couldn't, you know, couldn't lead his way out of a paper bag. Um, and I think one of the problems he had was that he came between two very strong uh, leaders of the International Olympic Committee, Avery Brundage, who was uh, an American who ran it for uh, the basically the 50s and 60s, and then um, uh, Juan Antonio Sanoc, who took over in 1980 and was very influential in making the organization financially healthy. Um, I think Lennon had very few cards to play in this thing. Um, he... Um, he didn't have any influence with the White House. There was he had no contacts in, in the United States, and he was if the only way he could have turned this off was to meet with Jimmy Carter before he made that public announcement on the 20th of January, which is when Carter makes the announcement. But Carter wasn't even willing to consult uh, Americans on the IOC or even uh, the leadership of the U.S. Olympic Committee. So I don't think he really could have done much to stop Carter. And afterwards, he didn't have a whole lot of cards to play elsewhere. So he kind of stalled and delayed. Um, a lot of people said this was the wrong approach. You know, Juan Antonio Samarank would have been, you know, up front and gotten across the Atlantic quickly. Um, Samarank actually does that when the 1984 happens and the Soviets boycott that. It didn't really make much of a difference, but um, Kalana didn't seem to be very energetic. And a lot of people in the Olympic community blame him for letting the boycott metastasize to a point where it actually, you know, did some real damage to the Olympic movement. I think uh, I think Kalanen had a very weak hand, and uh, his base his strategy was stall for time and hope the Americans kind of come to their senses. So he didn't have a lot to play. He didn't actually meet with Carter personally until May of uh, 1980. By then, you know, the train has left the station. Carter's publicly committed. It seems like a fairly meaningless meet, meeting, uh, but um, um, I don't. I don't think he could have done anything better. I don't think he had any resources to play. So I think he's underrated, but um, he did about as well as he could honestly be expected to do. So in July 1980, the the games do begin in Moscow. And uh, what was the assessment among those who attended of the 1980 Olympics? Well, a lot of people call them games without joy. That's what um, Kalan calls them in his memoirs. that's what um, the president of the Canadian Olympic Association calls them, who's also on the IOC. Um, I believe even the Marcus of Salisbury, who was um, a British individual on the IOC, uh, comes from a very uh, famous family and all this. They call them the Games Without Joy. I think that more describes the personal attitudes and feelings of these people who have been through a very bruising political battle. I mean, Prior to January 1980, you know who who, who disliked the Olympics. Suddenly, your your patriotism is questioned. All this sort of stuff. For a lot of them, it was a set of Olympics that they couldn't couldn't enjoy. And for a while, I was kind of taking that line until I looked at um, Sports Illustrated, not looking at any kind of anything classified, but just looking at the sports reporting of Sports Illustrated. And um, the Olympics have a magic of their own, and uh, the Olympics went off pretty well in Moscow. Um, a lot of world records were set. People seemed to be really enjoying the games. Um, one of the big things I, that I learned is that the Olympics is still pretty much a European phenomenon. The Olympics, both modern and ancient, started in, in Europe. And although the United States and the Soviet Union were probably the two biggest medal-winning powers within the Olympic movement, um, the other, you know, there are a lot of other countries that are not winning uh, gold medals and silver medals and all this. Uh, Indonesia, the Philippines, uh, India, you know, so forth. The countries that are winning, you know, fit, coming in second, third, fourth, and fifth are, you know, France, England, Germany, both east and west. So that's still where the heart of it is. And with most of the European nations uh, attending that Olympics, it's still pretty much the Olympics. Um, they had a they had a good time. Um, there were some impressive athletic contests. There were some powerful stories. The people who went, for the most part, enjoyed them. Uh, the Soviets kind of would all, didn't really want spontaneous celebrations unless it was planned in advance. But uh, it's kind of weird. But um, <laughs> uh, for the most part, the Olympics they went off and they were fairly successful. A lot of people had fun. And of course, the Soviets take wrong lesson from that um they say ah well the olympics need us so you know in 1984 that kind of leads them to think that they have the the trump card and um 
that's obviously not the case. People go to the 84 Olympics and the Americans have a blast and they don't, they don't miss the Soviets in the least. The Olympics have a magic of their own and it kind of transcends even powerful countries. And the big thing I argue in the book is, you know, you, there are countries, and the United States is one of them, that have enormous influence within the movement, um, but not kind of challenging movement. If you know, you can push it in a lot of a lot of ways within. And one of the reasons the United States has that is because we obviously love sports. There are a lot of us, and American television money is one of the big things that makes the Olympics uh, solvent. But that only comes in '84, and when you're paying the bills or you're writing the checks. Uh, that does give you a lot of influence. In your final chapter, you talk about the 1984 games, and, and you begin it with uh, really what I thought an ironic statement, that the boycott crisis in 1980 actually made the Olympic mover, movement stronger than it had ever been. So what did you mean by that? Um, it basically forced people to rethink um, rethink what they were doing, Um it also, 84, it really, for, one of the things is there's damage, people are angry. Uh, it forced the people in L.A., you know, they're invested in this. Um, Peter Uberoff is, you know, doing the thing. Um, and so there's a real effort to make um, make the Olympics not dependent on national power or on any kind of civic uh, financing or public financing. It has to be all done privately. And this ushers in a new period of um, uh, wealth into the IOC because they start basically generating um, you know, contracts. This is the official toothpaste of the U.S. Olympic Committee. This is the official toothpaste of the IOC, you know, and so forth. And Los Angeles is one of the first Olympics in a long time that actually makes money. And then they can invest that money back in the Olympic movement. Uh, the IOC opens up a museum in Switzerland, which is dedicated to, and I've been through it, it's really impressive. It's dedicated to, obviously, the modern Olympics, but they also talk a lot about the ancient Olympics. So, And uh, they start having money that they can give to people uh, who can train um, year-round. A lot of these people who are Olympic athletes can only do training, you know, for a couple months before, you know, the Olympics start, but now it becomes possible to basically provide grants, build uh, facilities in Colorado Springs, underwrite these guys, and let them train for, you know, a year at the time. So uh, it kind of, and it forces people to really kind of get back to the to the basics. Uh, they bring in uh, Juan Antonio Samarok, who takes over from Lord Kalanen, and it's, um, they, they come out of it much stronger. So we're almost out of time, Nick, and I want to ask, the Olympics are returning to Russia in 2014 for the first time since 1980, yeah. and uh, if you Google boycott and Sochi, mm-hmm. you come up with a lot of hits. And uh, so I want to ask you, do you, think, do you think boycotts are over in terms of the major nations like the United States? That's uh, that's a really good question, and um, you know my stock portfolio indicates that I'm really bad at predicting the future. <laughs> um, I think right now boycotts are pretty much over. Um, people are still going to use the Olympics um, as a way of making political statements, and there were certainly you go back to the uh, Vancouver Olympics of a couple two years ago, and there were Native American organizations that were trying to use the Olympic Games as a platform to make political statements in Canada. Um, so it, the visibility of the, of the competition is going to allow people to make uh, arguments. Uh, there was talk about boycotting Beijing for a while, um, but I don't think, you know, it's easy for someone to make a stand and say, you know, this is the principal moral stand. It's easy for you to do that when you're not suffering the consequences. The people who are really going to um, have to take the stand are the athletes, and for a lot of them it's, you know, it's the two issues aren't even related. Okay, the Russians are are devaluing the ruble, or they're pursuing certain policies in the Ukraine, or visa, you know, that we don't find, that we find objectionable. Um, that has to really belong to the International Olympic Committee, the athletes who go from the various countries, and I, I don't think you're going to see boycotts. Uh, from major nation states anytime in the near future. I suspect you'll probably see some more in one way, shape, or form, but I think most people realize that boycotts just really aren't a good way to use foreign policy. Um, The Olympics are not a good foreign policy platform. Um, 
the boycott, it really only hurts your own people. So to finish up, Nick, what are you uh, working on now? You talked about your, your Nixon project. Do you have something else that you're, you're working on? At the end of the year, uh, I have a book coming out on the making of the film Patton. So, uh, so I'm doing a film history, uh, the George C. Scott movie that came out in 1970. And uh, that, I just finished uh, making all the um, spelling corrections and all that stuff uh, last night. And then uh, the Nixon book, I'm hoping to start shopping around, and that's a sports book, a sports history book. So uh, those are the next two projects. All right. Well, very good. I enjoyed uh, reading this about the 1980 Olympics. Like you, I remember I remember the event that uh, that you describe in the book, and I remember uh, uh, I remember my feelings were ambiguous. I was supportive of the of the boycott. I was a good cold warrior as a as a boy. Uh, but at the same time, when when the Olympic when the Olympics came around the summer, I was disappointed that the United States wasn't there. Yeah, and I, I remember kind of feeling kind of mixed about it too. It's like, well, I'd like to see the Olympics because I had lived outside of the country for '76, and we didn't have um, the Olympics, and I was too young to really remember much about the previous Olympics. So, um, on the other hand, you know, I knew the Soviets were wrong. So it's one of those things. Um, um, I think uh, I think it was kind of a um, wasn't necessarily a victory. It wasn't a victory for Carter, but it wasn't necessarily a defeat either. It was kind of kind of a, something halfway. You've been listening to an interview with Nicholas Sarantakis about his book, Dropping the Torch: Jimmy Carter, the Olympic Boycott, and the Cold War, published by Cambridge University Press in 2010. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers dozens of channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on subjects from African studies to East Asian studies to Russian studies. If you like what you heard here, please friend us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. You can give us feedback and find links to shorter, thoughtful sports writing from around the world. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund, thank you for listening and enjoy your week.